Informing America's Farmers and Ranchers. It's Adams on Agriculture. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Glad you've joined us. Thanks for letting us be part of your day. Plenty going on. We have lots of folks to talk with today. Glad you're part of our conversation today. We're going to talk with Jeff Cooper, President and CEO of the Renewable Fuels Association, the House Biofuels Caucus uh, met yesterday. They had kind of a virtual town hall looking at the state of the ethanol industry. We'll talk about that with Jeff Cooper. Also look at ethanol sales into Mexico and just get an overview of the industry. As we get ready for the official start of USMCA next month, there are already problems and concerns being raised including by the dairy industry. We'll be talking with the National Milk Producers Federation about some of their concerns with uh, Canada before USMCA ever kicks in. And last time we talked with Caitlin Glover with the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, she was telling us why NCBA was so opposed to the Great American Outdoors Act and was hoping the Senate would not approve it. Well, the Senate has, so we'll get her reactions to that and where we go from here. And again, their concerns about that legislation, all that coming up on today's program. But we'll start it off by checking in with Todd Neely at DTN. Hi, Todd. How are you? I'm good, Mike. How are you? Good. Lots going on. Uh, uh, And there are some water issues with all that's going on. We don't want to overlook that. There are some uh, water issues in uh, different parts of the country. Yeah, you know, uh, the Klamath Irrigation Project out in southern Oregon, uh, for decades, farmers have been challenged in, in getting enough water. Uh, and a lot of that is, is, is uh, because of uh, there are three endangered species of fish out there that uh, the Bureau of Reclamation is required to protect. And so in this irrigation project, they every year they have to allocate a certain number of, of uh, gallons of water, that sort of thing. Um and what's come up lately is uh, that area is in a severe drought. Uh, you know, it's not entirely uncommon out there because it is kind of a high desert situation. They only get six to 11 inches of moisture a year. Uh, but they're at a point now where they're, they're only about to receive about a third of the allocation of the water that they normally would in a growing season. And so a lot of farmers had millions of dollars of uh, inputs in the ground already when uh, the Bureau of Reclamation decided – uh, that it had to cut back the allocation by quite a lot. And so uh, it's really putting farmers into a mad scramble out there to try to figure out what to do. You know, they stopped farming in the middle of planting, and uh, it's really a tough and dire situation out there. Well, there's no doubt water issues are always a an ongoing challenge, either too much or too little, it seems like. But there are a lot of places, several places, key production areas around the country that uh, – are either facing water shortages or the prospects of water shortages in the future. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and it's one of those things, uh, you know, as we look on down the road, uh, you know, the importance of getting water to some of these areas really hasn't changed. I mean, we're, you know, this, this fight out in Oregon has been going on, uh, you know, for decades, but almost 30 years ago, uh, and nothing's really been resolved. You know, Congress had an opportunity to approve an agreement made by uh, the groups out there, all the interests involved, uh, and that was not approved. And so uh, really they're kind of back to square one there, and you, you see that in a lot of places in the country. You know, California's have problems with water. Uh, and so, yeah, it, it's always one of those issues that 
it, it probably never will go away. Either there's too much water and farmers are losing ground or there just isn't enough for a crop. And when it gets down to issues of who gets water and it comes down to agriculture versus cities, usually agriculture loses that battle. Yeah, they really do. You know, I think we've seen over the years, I mean, farmers have been driven out of certain areas or certain regions of the country as, you know, urban sprawl uh, moves along. And uh, it definitely it definitely raises a ton of issues. And it's one of those, you know, and it's such a local issue, too. I mean, every state has a different situation. And uh, it seems in many respects the federal regulators and federal, federal lawmakers have really been hesitant to do a whole lot about it. Um, you know, the West is really in dire, dire need of, of different infrastructure pro, uh, projects for water. Uh, I think they're, they're, you know, they're working through Congress trying to get some of that done. The president's even uh, expressed interest in getting some of that done. And so uh, we'll wait and see. But there's definitely these issues are just not going away. Meanwhile, I know you've been covering and watching what's going on in various states on the so-called ag-gag laws. Bring us up to date. Well, yeah, Mike, you know, uh, when you look across the country, uh, these, these laws haven't fared well in court at all. You know, they're, they're designed to keep undercover, you know, animal rights groups and that sort of those sorts of people out of, uh, you know, ag, ag facilities. Uh, this past week and a half, we've seen two different things happen. We saw the North Carolina ag-gag law was uh, declared unconstitutional. And then in Iowa, uh, Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds signed into law, the state's third ag-gag law. You know, in um, the first two have been struck down in court. Uh, and so Iowa continues to try to, you know, thread the needle and, and find a law that will actually make its way through a court argument. And uh, right now, the history isn't so good. There are very few of these laws that have survived, survived court challenges. And so uh, we'll see where that goes. But it's definitely an issue. You know, these, uh, these ag facilities have been subjects to undercover filming and a lot of things and uh, it's really painted a bad light on on the industry coming up next we're going to talk with jeff cooper with the renewable fuels association uh waiting to see what some of these blending volumes are going to be for ethanol in the year ahead and uh, concerns still ongoing about these small refinery exemptions yeah, you know, Mike, uh, one report that we've heard is that uh, EPA's proposal, which I think is probably going to come by the end of this month, maybe a little later, uh, they, they're apparently going to start taking steps to uh, to reinstate the 500 million gallons that were lost in the, in what a court ruled were illegal uh, waivers back in, I believe, 2017. Um, and so there's a chance that that might be in this proposal. At least uh, there's, there's talk that it's going to be like two-year two-year kind of a thing that where we'll do 250 million one year and 250 the next and so i guess we're kind of waiting to see but uh epa is still very silent about the whole uh, small refineries exemption issue too and so that's a that's a big thing we're still waiting to hear more about on those increased volumes or getting some of those lost volumes back i think we'll almost take a position we'll believe it when we see it right exactly right yeah i think uh you know, EPA's had a chance, you know, it's been three years and, and they haven't addressed the issue. They continue to, I mean, and they've been called out in public, you know, public uh, hearings and so on. So they, so they know it's there. And, and uh, yeah, I think it's a wait and see because this, uh, this, this issue seems to come up every year. Sure does. Todd, good to talk with you. Thanks a lot. Take care. All right. Thank you, Mike. Take care. All right.
Todd Neely, DTN reporter. Just want to mention tomorrow we're going to talk about the dicamba issue with Darren Kopik, president and CEO of the Ag Retailers Association. His thoughts on the EPA position on uh, defending their allowing the existing stocks of those dicamba products to go ahead and be used and uh, the legal battle that's uh, going on between EPA and the Ninth Circuit Court. We'll talk about that on tomorrow's program. But up next, an update on biofuels, the ethanol industry with Jeff Cooper, president and CEO of the Renewable Fuels Association. Stay with us. You're listening to AOA. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. All right, lots going on right now for the ethanol industry. We'll talk it over with Jeff Cooper, President and CEO of the Renewable Fuels Association. Jeff, always good to talk with you. You participated in kind of a virtual town hall with the House Biofuels Caucus yesterday. Tell us how that went. What, what do you think came from that? Well, Mike, it, it was a, a great event yesterday. Uh, the House Biofuels Caucus uh, sponsored a, a town hall event, virtually, of course, uh, to discuss the state of the ethanol industry and, and all that's happening uh, in, in our sector and in agriculture. Uh, and, and I think more than anything, it really brought to light and, and really raised the profile of some of the key challenges our industry is facing today. Uh, we were already dealing with some very difficult market conditions before COVID-19 came along. Uh, and, and, of course, the pandemic has just been uh, devastating to the industry. So we had sort of a, a double or triple whammy that we've been dealing with in our industry. Um, and we just wanted to have a conversation with leaders in the House um, about what's going on, about the sort of, of relief and, and help we're looking for um, it was just a, a great conversation. Uh, uh, Chairman Peterson is, is the uh, co-chair of the House Biofuels Caucus along with uh, Congressman Marshall from Kansas. Uh, but we also had uh, Congressman Loebsack from Iowa and, and Rodney Davis from Illinois and, and several other uh, House members who have been great supporters uh, participating in that event yesterday. All right, so let's look at some things coming up. EPA... Uh, there's a story they're going to maybe uh, finally try to give back some get back some of those lost gallons uh, because of past exemptions when they announce more gallons in their next when they set the uh, volume level is that right what what do we know about that yeah the EPA is is sort of up to its old tricks they're um dangling things in front of the industry that that look good on the surface and then at the at the same time we know they're working on some things that would just undermine uh that progress but but yeah we had a a court decision from 2017 uh where RFA and a number of other groups took EPA to court and again this was the Obama administration EPA uh because of of their improper use of a waiver uh, of the RFS in the 2014, 2015, and 2016 RFS compliance years. The court found in our favor and said, yes, EPA, you acted illegally, and, and you need to restore at least the lost demand from 2016, which was 500 million gallons. Um, EPA has been dragging its feet for three years on giving back that 500 million gallons, and we're hearing now that uh, they do have a plan 
uh, to restore that 500 million gallons, that they would split it in half and add 250 million gallons to the 2021 RFS and the other 250 million gallons in 2022. Uh, but again, until until the, the the concrete is dry on those plans, we are always um, skeptical of, of of you know anything we hear about EPA doing something helpful for the industry. Plus, if they keep granting these small refinery exemptions, especially some retroactively, won't that just further undermine anything that it looks like you're getting on paper? In reality, you're really not getting. Yeah. Yeah, and that's exactly the, the the point I was making. You know, they they kind of dangle this out there. Oh, the the remand from three years ago. We're finally getting around to dealing with that. Um, and then, you know, behind the curtain, we know that they are receiving uh, dozens of so-called gap year small refiner exemption requests for for years going back to 2013 uh, from refiners who are looking for a way to to really skirt the Tenth Circuit Court ruling that we got in late January. And, and keep their eligibility for future waivers. And so the way that they're doing this is, is filling these gaps. Um, you know, in, in years where they didn't receive an exemption, um, they're going back and asking for exemptions retroactively uh, so that they can say, oh, yeah, we comply with the court decision, and we've always had a continuously extended exemption, so we remain eligible to get them in the future. Um, that's what we know is happening at EPA, and, and we expect to be hearing more about that in, in the days and, and weeks ahead. We've had this conversation many times, Jeff, about holding EPA responsible, and does the president know what EPA is doing on this, and if not, he should, those types of things. Um, mm-hmm. It seems like you're you're now, it's so serious, it's gone on so long that you're now saying, you know, Mr. President, you have to know, uh, you have to take responsibility for this. Well, yeah, and I think we're you're you're seeing that broadly. Uh, uh, Senator Grassley just the other day uh, said, if if EPA ends up accepting, you know, granting these gap year petitions, um, not only will this administration be taken to court again by farmers and biofuel producers, uh, but Mr. Grassley said, you know, President Trump would be risking support in Iowa and and other Midwestern states. Um, so I, I do think there is broad recognition that that this. This stuff could could be the the straw that breaks the camel's back um, in, in many states that are already kind of you know in play, um, and, and so yeah, there there definitely are political ramifications. We're we're beginning to see evidence of that in in some of the Senate races, um, and so yeah, we're just uh, you know calling on on supporters of the industry and and farmers out there uh, to make sure that their elected officials. Uh, understand just how important these issues are and that they do have, uh, you know, decisions on these issues have ramifications. We're talking with Jeff Cooper, president and CEO of the Renewable Fuels Association. Jeff, we've seen a story about uh, selling ethanol into Mexico. Bring us up to date on that. Yeah, we are seeing some progress uh, in Mexico. There is uh, evidence of, of increased shipments of ethanol going into Mexico finally. Um, it's in the form of blended E10, so it's crossing the border as, as finished fuel already, uh, which is fine. You know, that's, that's great. Uh, whether it's um, in, in, you know, as E1, E98 or, or E10, um, we're just happy to see gallons moving that direction. We expect to see that continue and to expand um, in the years ahead. We do still have some, some legal matters we're working through in Mexico to more broadly open that market 
Um, but I think it's a good sign, and, and I think the, the Mexican marketplace is really beginning to uh, realize and understand the benefits of, of using more ethanol um, economically, but also environmentally and helping clean up some of their air problems down there. So uh, that is good news, um, and we could, we could use <laughs> all the good news we can get mm-hmm. right now. What is the potential there for that market? And is this kind of a, a, a surge right now, but it could back off? Or do you see that as a, a growth market? Well, we do see it as a growth market. Um, Mexico is about a 15 billion gallon per year gasoline market. So it's it's about the same size as California in terms of, of how much gasoline they consume every year. Uh, so obviously, if, if all of that was E10, uh, that'd be a 1.5 billion gallon market for, for ethanol. Um, today, they're blending, you know, 100 to 200 million gallons, um, you know, maybe, maybe that much. Um, so there's lots of room for growth. Uh, right now, the Mexican market is, is meeting most of their octane needs from using MTBE, which, of course, is a, a compound that has been banned in, in most states in the U.S. We don't use it in our market uh, because of its, its human health effects. Um, so we do see a real opportunity for ethanol to continue to displace MTBE in the Mexican market, just as we did here in the U.S. Uh, and there's, you know, I think opportunities, the, the Mexican government and, and industry is very interested in, in building their own domestic ethanol production industry and, and assets, and, and we're working with them on that as well. So, uh, you know, we, we do see a lot of opportunity south of the border in the years ahead. Okay, real quick, where are we with the, our industry as far as getting back up and going, bringing production back online? Where are we? Well, we, we do continue to see recovery, Mike. Uh, we've actually had seven straight weeks now, um, after we saw yesterday's data, seven straight weeks of gradual kind of incremental increases in production. Uh, so plants are coming back online. You know, at the low point in late April, we had 80 facilities so about 40% of the ethanol plants in the country were fully shut down. And we had dozens more that were running below normal rates. Um, today, we think we have about 40, you know, give or take, ethanol plants that remain shut down. And, and most of those facilities that were operating below normal rates have, have ramped back up. So we are seeing some recovery, but we do remain about 25% below this time of year ago when it comes to, to ethanol output. Yeah, still a long ways to go. Jeff, thanks for the update. We'll stay in touch. Appreciate it. Thank you, Mike. Take care. All right. Jeff Cooper, president and CEO of the Renewable Fuels Association. USMCA, remember when we talked a lot about that? It's not just a a deal that's been put to bed, done, completed. It has to actually kick in, which starts next month. But already there are some concerns being raised about it. You're even hearing it uh, from the president. Well, there are some groups like the U.S. dairy industry that have some concerns as well. We'll talk with the National Milk Producers Federation about it next here on AOA. Stay with us. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. USMCA about to kick in next month, but 
there are already concerns being raised even before we get the official start of it. Some of those concerns being raised by the U.S. dairy industry. Joining us now is Jaime Castaneda. He's Senior Vice President for Policy Strategy and International Trade for the National Milk Producers Federation. Jaime, good to talk with you again. What are your concerns about uh, what Canada is doing as we get ready to officially start USMCA? morning, Mike. Uh, and can you hear me okay? Yep, sound good. Great. Uh, so the, the, we know for for years that Canada will always try to undermine any agreement that we have had. I mean, they have done that since uh, way back when we negotiated the first U.S.-Canada free trade agreement in 1988. So uh, the agreement is not even uh, uh, enforced. And which will enter into force in July 1st. And the Canadians have already issued an administration of the new market access that we're going to have. That market access is given through something that is called TRQs, tariff rate quotas, uh, which is a small amount of product can come in into the country with low duties or no duties. The way that actually the Canadians have uh, issue this administration of this TRQs is that 85% will go to uh, processors, um, uh, those that actually are competing with us to sell anything into the Canadian market at the retail or food service. So obviously, we have significant concerns because the Canadian government has used this system for other trade agreements. And in fact, in USMCA, there is a specific provisions to prevent this from happening again. In previous agreements, whether it's the famous CPTPP, which it was TPP without the United States, uh, the filling rates of this quota, so the amount of access uh, from the total amount that was available, is minimum. It's actually only about 5%. So obviously, the Canadian government is doing whatever they can uh, to prevent us from gaining uh, gaining the new market access that it was negotiated under this agreement. Yeah, because while not a perfect deal, uh, one of the the goals of USMCA for the dairy industry was to get greater access into that Canadian market, right? So you're saying these TRQs could keep that from happening, and the full uh, benefit of USMCA for the U.S. dairy industry might not be uh, uh, realized. Correct. Right. There were two main issues that we pushed extremely hard uh, for the U.S. government to negotiate. The elimination of Class 7 and Class 6, that you remember, it was mm-hmm. that type of scheme that the Canadians um, uh, created in order for them to actually keep supply management, keep high prices, but at the same time uh, be able to dump uh, schemal powder into the world markets, undermining the prices. So we, we that part of the negotiation was the elimination of, of, of that, and we'll see what happens. They, they have six months to eliminate that program, and we'll see what, what they do and what they replace it with. With the other part was to actually gain uh, much more access. At the end, uh, we got about 3.6% of the domestic market, 
even though it's small, we wanted to actually have at least 10% of the opportunity to sell that. Uh, if you look at, for instance, keys, uh, at year six of the agreement, this year is year one, next year will be year two, and year six, uh, the amount, the total amount of keys would have been 12,500 metric tons. So it's not peanuts. It is an interesting uh, amount, especially if you are able to sell uh, to the food service and retail. However, that is not an interesting amount or that amount will never uh, be um, accomplished or achieved if actually that is only imported uh, by uh, processors that are importing perhaps the lowest quality cheese. Of course, all our cheese is good quality, but you know what I mean, low-value product. So the concern is you may not realize these uh, what we thought would be gains, uh, progress made in moving dairy products into Canada unless these issues are addressed. We're talking with Jaime Castaneda, Senior Vice President, Policy Strategy and International Trade for the uh, National Milk Producers Federation. So Jaime, uh, our trade rep, Robert Lighthizer, has been appearing before Congress talking about trade issues. Have you talked with the trade representative's office about this? And if so, what's their response been? Yes, we have. Uh, and of course, we're very working very closely with our partner, the U.S. Dairy Export Council, on bringing all these issues into the U.S. government. Uh, and uh, what they have told us is, obviously, we are concerned. In fact, Ambassador Lighthizer yesterday uh, during the Ways and Means Committee hearing, he noted that uh, he is concerned about Canadian actions uh, because of their history and that they're going to monitor this very closely. But that he said, I quote, we have to first um, have this agreement enter into force uh, in order for us to actually bring uh, a consultative committee uh, or a case uh, against Canada. So we certainly are building already um, uh, a memorandum, a, pay, a paper to provide to USDR that will uh, that will show uh, all the provisions that, in our view, the Canadian government has already uh, has already undermined the USMCA. Just reminds us and brings to our attention that even though we have a trade deal in USMCA, that doesn't mean all these issues just immediately go away. There's still going to be a lot of things to work through. Yeah, when it comes to Canada, uh, you bet that we're going to continue to to have issues and we're going to continue to to work to try to solve those issues. We're definitely not giving up. The Canadian government certainly wants us to do that. They want to get uh, make sure that we get tired of it, but we will not. We will consistently uh, go after all the uh, provisions that the Canadians are doing to prevent uh, uh, our dairy farmers and our industry from gaining gain, uh, full access to, to Canada and USMCA. I mean, let me switch over to China because there's all this uh, scrutiny over the phase one trade deal. How much are they buying in ag products? We talk a lot about soybeans. What about their purchases of, of dairy products? Yeah, so let me actually first say that I, I do agree with Ambassador Lighthizer. He's been saying that uh, China uh, 
has actually uh, working in good faith to implement phase one agreement. I think that that's accurate. We can see it in dairy. They have actually uh, fulfilled uh, a number of their commitments with respect to regulatory issues, uh, trade facilitation for plant registrations and other issues like that. Now, when it comes to dairy, uh, we, of course, uh, we were actually selling a lot of whey uh, and, uh, and some other pro products. We were actually uh, increasing our sales of cheese. Unfortunately, when the retailatory tariffs came about, uh, some of these uh, sales um, declined. We, because New Zealand has an agreement with uh, China, they actually sell a lot of their powder, uh, which is are significant, as you know. We are selling um, a little bit uh, less than we normally have sold before the retaliatory tariffs. But what we expected was that China will start buying a lot more dairy from us. We have not seen that yet, but uh, there is a lot of conversations I'm aware of between Chinese buyers and uh, U.S. Uh, companies. So my hope is that we're going to see an increase of um, sales of U.S. dairy products, uh, especially in the last quarter of, of this year. Cross your fingers. Yeah, we'll keep a, a close watch on that. Um, overall, your thoughts on, on dairy exports uh, during COVID-19, the trade issues that we're dealing with? Well, we, we had actually a couple of uh, months that they were better than expected, uh, especially uh, April. Um, we thought that actually that, that was going to uh, show a decline. We had some some uh, loss on, on the cheese side, but I think on everything else looks uh, fairly, fairly good. Now, uh, the May numbers are not coming until uh, July. We'll, we'll, that, I think, is going to be critical. Uh, we know, you know very well, that Mexico is our largest market, and we have had some issues in, into Mexico. But I think that uh, hopefully we're going to be able to uh, compensate any loss on, uh, from Mexico demand uh, to other markets. I think, again, um, recovering, uh, full recovery of Mexico and um, opening uh, China and some of the Southeast Asia countries, I think, are, are going to show that we're going to do very well. All right. Jaime, thank you very much. We appreciate it, and we'll watch this uh, situation with Canada closely. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Mike. Talk to you Take soon. care. Bye. Uh -huh. Jaime Castaneda, Senior Vice President, Policy, Strategy, and International Trade for the National Milk Producers Federation. Well, the Senate passed the Great American Outdoors Act. NCBA not happy with that. We'll talk about it next on AOA. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. The Great American Outdoors Act has passed in the Senate. 73 to 25 was the vote. Now it goes uh, to the House for a vote there and then on to the President uh, for his signature. One of the groups opposing the Great American Outdoors Act 
was the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. Joining us now is Caitlin Glover, NCBA's Executive Director for Natural Resources. Caitlin, we had you on a, a few days ago. You talked about your opposition to this to this bill, uh, citing concerns about uh, lack of maintenance over public lands now, let alone adding more t- uh, possibly the acquisition of even more lands uh, by the government. Uh, what's your reaction to this uh, vote, 73 to 25 in the Senate? That's right, Mike. You know, my concerns are, are still there. I am disappointed to see that 73 members uh, of the Senate did vote to, to move this bill forward. We're expecting the House to, to have a vote here as early as next week, uh, but that doesn't erase the problems. Just because you want to move something forward uh, because it, it feels like a good idea doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to play out. There was bipartisan support for it, so Obviously, a, a, a lot of uh, members of the Senate uh, feel that this is a good step forward. Why do you think? Why is there such a disagreement here? Do you think? Why do you disagree with this feeling that this would be a, a, a good step for the country? Well, and that's that, that's just what it is, Mike. It's it's a feeling, right? With a with a name like the Great American Outdoors Act, that evokes the feeling of of taking your kids to Yellowstone um, or looking at these wide open spaces that you want to preserve across the American West. Um, but but it, the feeling ends there, right? It's the devil is in the details and the practical implementation of this bill is is really the place where we have those concerns. Paying for this bill, paying for and not only the deferred maintenance on the the assets the agencies already own, and then adding more assets uh, to to their portfolios, um, that's a financial concern, and that money is going to come out of the pockets of the average American taxpayer uh, well into the future. We also see the the problems like we talked about a few days ago about these acquisitions taking lands, taking acres off of the the, the tax rolls in these rural counties. Uh, so there are economic impacts in the the counties as well. Um, I understand why so many members want to set up a good future for our parks and for our BLM lands and our forests. Uh, The problem is that we just disagree uh, not only on how to pay for it, uh, but on the best place uh, to manage those assets, the best manager for those assets. Yeah, the bill's co-sponsors included Republicans Cory Gardner of Colorado and Steve Daines of Montana. Daines saying, Senator Daines saying, Uh, Ahead of the vote, the bill would protect the program and provide some certainty for our land managers, for conservationists, for sportsmen and women. He said the bill would address a $12 billion maintenance backlog in the national parks, including $700 million in the Glacier and Yellowstone parks alone. So you're saying your concern is over the maintenance of existing uh, land, public lands. So does this bill not help that situation? So part of the bill does does try to help that situation, and you know, and I I understand that that Senator James he shares he he and his home state share the the wonderful landscapes of Yellowstone and other national parks, um, and and it's it's a it's a great attempt um, to to try to get to the underlying problem. The problem is that the deferred maintenance backlog of the agencies involved in this bill is well over twenty billion dollars, and so the nine point five billion that's provided doesn't uh, touch even even close to half of that total backlog. So at the end of this five years, we're, we're still going to have a maintenance backlog um, and, and really not be any closer to, to 
addressing the underlying issues, how agencies conduct maintenance, and how they make sure that the, they prioritize this maintenance correctly. I also uh, I, I find it funny when, when members of Congress talk about providing certainty by changing uh, discretionary funding to mandatory funding. So Mike, what that means is that when you convert funding to mandatory funding, that removes Congress's involvement in providing money to a program. So when Senator Daines talks about providing certainty for this program, uh, he's saying that we can't trust Congress to pr provide money for a program that a lot of people love, uh, which seems really counterintuitive to me uh, as, as a member of Congress. I don't understand why these 73 members willingly gave up authority and willingly gave up their oversight ability for something that we find so important. We all love our public lands. And they should, too. Do you think this opens the door for what would basically be a, a land grab by the federal government? Well, I, I think that's exactly what it does, because if you look at the, the purse strings alone, right, uh, the, in the future, if this becomes law, uh, we're going to see a minimum of $360 million dollars every year into perpetuity solely for these federal agencies to, to buy land. Uh, that money is, has been provided by, by becoming mandatory. But what that also does is that it removes the congressional involvement in that priority process, because previously agencies would have come to Congress to say, these are the lands that we want to buy for this year. There are five or ten parcels. And Congress would have to approve that and provide money for those projects in the annual appropriations process. Now the agency says, we have this money, we're going to spend it this way. Uh, Congress, just so you know, uh, this is what we're doing. There isn't a congressional approval process uh, in, in this bill. So yes, it absolutely sets up the agencies to buy land willy-nilly uh, without consideration of the future maintenance costs. You think this will pass in the House? Unfortunately, Mike, I, I do think it will. I think that the, the conversation is, is going to be much more about whether you love public lands or not, whether you love your, your uh, parks or not. Uh, and, and I think that the members are, who are, are going to vote for this bill have, have shown that they're not too worried about how to pay for it. All right. We'll see uh, what the House does and keep an eye on this. Caitlin, thank you for uh, giving us your perspective and, uh, and sharing your concerns with us. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. Caitlin Glover, Executive Director of Natural, Natural Resources for the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. That wraps it up for today. Thank you for being with us. Stay safe. Stay well. Join us tomorrow on AOA.